All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, today is November uh, 26th, I think, 2023, and we're calling this Lesson uh, 3, Characteristics of the Contented, Part 1. I think it'll probably take uh, two more lessons after this for these characteristics, but we'll, uh, we'll start with Part 1 and see how far we get and how much more we need to cover. So... Just by way of overview, the we were introduced to the words involved in, in contentment as we started and then went into the many different definitions and how those definitions all have different facets to them. And there's a, a, a line that goes through the um, definitions that we're going to look at in, close, in closeness today um, as we consider the role of providence as it relates to contentment. And so one of the characteristics of the contented is that they have an understanding of God's providence. And so we're going to, we're going to look at a, a number of scriptures and some of the confessional documents to help, us, to help us see that. And so just by way of review, we sliced up the uh, uh, different definitions. Sorry, I took, I took four of them today. Uh, and and just excerpted the section that I thought would be helpful to think about it in light of providence. So here are a few slices. So uh, God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition is how Burroughs puts it. So there's there's more to all these definitions. These are just the, the parts we're looking at as they relate to providence. And Ames describes it as that portion that God has given him. And Plummer says, we rest satisfied with the will of God respecting our temporal affairs concerning his allotments. And then the last one from Jacob is stillness and sedatedness of spirit under all occurrences of providence. So these theologians and pastors saw a connection between the ideas and the doctrine of providence and how it relates to contentment. And today's world, we uh, providence is something that is, we're going to look at it three different ways today, but it's, it's something that is, uh, I think, oftentimes narrowly viewed and I want to expand how we think about the idea of the doctrine of providence. How should we think about the ongoing work of God and our lives? And so we're going to divide providence. We're going to look at it three different ways today. We're going to look at it in creation, execution, and person. And so the... Westminster Confession very helpfully uh, divides the chapter on creation from the chapter on providence. There are two separate chapters. There's one on decrees beforehand, but we'll, we're going to leave that uh, for a different time. So let's look, at, uh, let's look at of creation. This is section one of chapter four. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein whether visible or invisible in the space of six days and all 
very good. So there's a lot that can be said about God's power and his wisdom uh, in creation, but the point that we, I want to emphasize this morning is that creation is the starting point for us in thinking about providence. You could, you could back it up and think decrees, and, but when, it, when those decrees manifest, when, when those plans are developed, they begin with something. God created something, and inside that something, the world as we know it, contains this revelation of his eternal power, but also wisdom and goodness are combined with that. God doesn't act just mechanistically that somehow this thing just emerged. He acts with deliberate plan that's in accord with his character. And so you would expect that the world and the whole universe that God has created reflects himself. And, and that's the beginning point as we think about providence is acknowledging that God is the one who created everything. Now, there are lots of implications about the, uh, for us in admitting that the world has a creator, and not everybody in today's culture believes that to be true. I think it's pretty clear the Bible teaches that. I think the idea that it came from nothing, it's just, I have no intellectual capacity to understand that. I think it's silly. The scriptures tell us in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. That's the working assumption as we start in this class. But one of the implications in having a creator is also, uh, it, it, you, you start with the idea of creation, but when we were looking at those definitions, we go back and, and if you think of disposal in every condition, doesn't refer to creation. Disposal in every condition refers to something else. It refers to the ongoing maintenance and work that God has in providence. So, you need creation as you start, but you don't stop with creation. Uh, you, want to, you want to move toward thinking about providence in all the different ways that Scripture provides for our understanding. So the idea of creating and the idea of governing are separated here in a confessional document. So we're going to look at, uh, at uh, chapter 5, uh, section 1 of Providence, so listen to these words here. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most holy, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. There's a lot to think about there, and we're not going to look at uh, nearly all of these different uh, points that are being made, but it, it should be clear that even just as we were describing in creation, there's more than just raw power involved. There's also a moral component. It's reflective of God's uh, being and his character. Providence has the same idea embedded in it, that God is not doing things capriciously, uh, God is not doing things without reason. He's not directed by outside forces. He is doing all this work himself according to what is good and pleasing in his eyes. So there are three elements in this paragraph that I want to bring to our attention. First is, who is the actor emphasized in 5.1? God. That's how it starts off. And 
in providence, it starts off by acknowledging God as the creator. God, the creator, the great creator of all things. So even in, as we begin to think about providence and its role in contentment, we're immediately brought back to thinking about God being the creator of all things. That's our starting point. So what's the action of God, who, has, who is the great creator of all things? What's the action involved in thinking about providence? Well, the action here is, it says he upholds, directs, disposes, and governs. Those are the words. Now, those, each of those words become important because they all have different nuances to them, right? Upholding and disposing are not quite the same thing. Governing is different yet. Um, directing is another way of thinking about things. It's a little more possibly closely related to disposing, but yet it's got a different nuance to it as well. And you'll notice that even though the language uh, in the 1600s would say doth, does is the word, and, and that's not in the past tense, right? It's not that God did this, that somehow he, he formed this action and then was free of it all, right? That, that's, there is a school of thought that believes that, isn't there? That God initiated things and then kind of turned it over to the rules of nature, the laws of nature, some ungovernable forces that, that regulates and, and outworks everything. Well, that's not the way the confession looks at this. It specifically says, look, he upholds all things. He directs, he disposes, he governs everything that happens. And so what's the object of God doing the upholding with all those verbs? And it says all creatures. It says all creatures, actions, and things. It's kind of interesting. I, that sounds all-encompassing, all creatures, actions, and things. But they add from the greatest even to the least. It's not really important to add that. I mean, you could say all creatures, actions, and things ought to cover everything, but they don't want any wiggle room. They're emphasizing from the greatest to the least, there is nothing that is too small to operate outside God's upholding, directing, disposing, and governing. And there's nothing too great. There's nothing too big. There's no stone that's too big that he can't move, and there's nothing so small he can't see that he can't, Direct it. The confession is abundantly clear on this. So, so the, the confession puts the framework in place for us to think about God being the one who, according to his own nature and his power, created everything from nothing. And then separately, but yet distinctly and still joined to it, it's the idea that he's actively involved with its unfolding through the upholding, directing, governing, and disposing. So let's look at a few passages to, uh, I hope this isn't a difficult point to prove, but it may, uh, it may be revealing uh, as to who says it and what they say if you, if you want to point your focus to the idea of the revelation that God is active in the world in the things that he's doing. So let's look at this first passage, excerpt to just part of it here. But this is good King Nebi when he's come out of his funk, right? He, he's been uh, relegated to uh, a life of, uh, it became vegan, didn't he? That's one way to say it, <laughs> he became a vegan. But he also, he also lost his mind 
uh, and he wasn't able to think straight. But listen to, what, listen to how he describes the revelation that he receives. I, Nebuchadnezzar, and my understanding returned to me. Now he's saying, now I get it. Now I get it. It's as if all of this became a revelation to me. For his, that is God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So, so Nebuchadnezzar is making some interesting points, right? That the duration of this enduring kingdom that God has built is from everlasting. So it extends across all aspects of time from the beginning all the way through time. And he describes it again from generation to generation. And that everything together by comparison is of nothing, right? He's saying there's nothing that compares with God's kingdom. And he says he didn't just do it once, but that he does these things from generation to generation. He's actively managing his kingdom. He's extending it. How does Nebuchadnezzar know this? Well, he was in that vegan funk, right? And he came out of it and he said, now I've got my reason and all my understanding has come back. And then he says, you know, don't think for a minute that anybody can stop this. Nothing can inhibit what God is doing. God is active and God is doing this and it will be done. There's a, there's a, a similarity to what the, the confession was saying in that first section, right? From greatest to the least, all, all creatures, all actions, all things. Everything falls under the realm of God's active management. And even Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar could see this. So let's look at a few other verses here. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. So the, the scope of whatever God wants to do, he does. Now, what does he want to do? Well, everything according to his holy will, everything that is good and just and righteous. It's not just capricious. It's not mechanical. He's doing things for his own pleasure. Uh, Proverbs 15, the, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Let's think about that for a minute. Uh, Proverbs is very good at bringing this uh, bodily, physical language and describing uh, God in terms that we would understand of the body. I mean, God doesn't have any eyes, right? So, so the, but it says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So uh, every place is kind of interesting. There are some deep places. There's some faraway places. Are any of the stars too far away to escape God's notice? He names them, everyone. He knows where they're at. He knows exactly where they're at at all points in time. He understands what's in the bottom of the oceans. He understands what's in the bottom of uh, mines that men dig. I mean, there, when, you, when you think about the scope of what God sees, it's natural that it would be Everything all at once because he made it. It's in its place. It's doing what he wants to do. He keeps his eye on this thing. So you could look at this phrase, the eyes of the Lord are in every place in several different ways. You could see that God is looking at all our actions. He knows the inclinations of our heart. He knows the disposition. He's making an account, right? And 
if God is remembering and acknowledging and recording all this stuff, every thought, word, and deed, Jesus says, is it's there before God. But you could also look at it that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Why? Because he's managing all of it. He knows everything at all times going on. He never lets his eye off what he's doing. It's constantly before him. It's in front of him. Everything. And he's keeping watch. Keeping watch. On the evil and the good. Well, there's a moral component to it. But it's not just a moral component. He might be protecting the good, right? He might, he, he might be preventing something from happening. He might be sending the wicked to their doom. He's devising, uh, they're going to stumble and they're going to be killed from their own devices. So all kinds of things you can think about with this language used in Proverbs as it all communicates God's active involvement in our lives and in the whole world. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generation. So here we have some parallelism. You see the counsel, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations. So here the nations get together and they want to array themselves in some form against God and his kingdom. Well, that's active involvement. God's eyes of the Lord are right there in the council of the nations, right? And what's he doing? Ah, he just brings it to nothing. He frustrates their plans from the greatest even to the least, as the confession was saying. The nations getting together. It's not just peoples, although that's the parallel that's given here. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The combined efforts of everyone together is not something that frustrates God's plans. He is active his eye, his ear are always listening, always watching, being careful about what happens in all of creation. So this idea of involvement in the day-to-day affairs of things in our, uh, from the dimension of our spiritual lives, what's in our heart, what, what are things that we're thinking about versus what the nations are actively doing or whether there's a volcano erupting or whether there are uh, a deer giving birth, uh, germs and microbes. All these things are ever before God exactly in the place he wants them. It's really quite remarkable to think of it in that light, isn't it? That all these things are right where God wants them. So there's great comfort, isn't there, in that? There's also great terror in that, thinking that the eyes of the Lord are looking at the good and the evil. You're not going to get away with anything. There's absolutely nothing you're going to get away with. And, and you, might, you might hide your actions outwardly, but God understands what's going on in the heart. He sees everything, including the inclinations of your heart. So God sees all these things, and all of its complexity is all being worked together. And it's not a serious problem for him to manage. He's not preoccupied with this. He's actively managing all things. So before we go on to the next section, what do you think about this? Is this the way you guys approach providence in creation? I mean, from the stars in the heaven to the hairs on our head. From the big to the little. From the big to the little, that's right. Yeah. That's a changing number, too. It is a changing number. That's right. Yeah. With some, it changes faster than others. <laughs> I have a question that comes to mind when you're saying, like, uh, so 
Well, God knows every thought, action, deed in our heart, isn't it? So when we have like uh, inappropriate thoughts or whatnot, and we're not. I'm not necessarily. We're not so necessarily. We. I don't. I'm not not so necessarily responsible for having that appropriate thought. That how I react to it is that correct? Because some of these thoughts I I don't want to have that I have. Mm-hmm. It's just how I react to them, what I do with them. But when God's watching my heart, my actions, and my deed, I mean, am I being held accountable for, uh, you know, I mean, having thoughts that are, you know, inappropriate? Uh, yeah. Having the thought, I mean, not how I react to it or what I do with it or how I try to counter it, but just to have the thought that I, I'm having a hard time stopping. You know? Sure. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's a... held accountable for those? I, I think that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a very important distinction, and I think we can make even an additional distinction from that. So uh, one, way to, one way to help see the differences is a person can be tempted both inwardly and outwardly, right? I mean, so you might see a pile of money and be inclined to steal the money or something like that, right? That would be... That's the thought. That, well, well, that, well, we're just thinking about the outward side of it first. So the fact that the money was there when you walked by is not something you're responsible for, right? But, but what about the, the desire to want to steal the money? So the desire to steal the money comes from inside, not outside. So God's, God is is ordering our walk and our path, and we don't know what we're going to encounter, uh, but we still have a responsibility for the things that happen inside us. Uh, so James reminds us that God does not incline anyone to sin, and the desires and the thoughts don't come from nothing. They come from something. It's actually, we're going to cover that in a couple weeks when we get to, um, when we get to that section. Uh, so, the totality of the extent of our, the possibilities of where we can sin is great. There, there are a lot of opportunities inwardly to sin. And those are also matched by the forgiveness we have in Christ. That Christ's life and his death and his resurrection provide for us the comprehensive forgiveness of sins that include even the wayward desires of our heart. So, uh, as Psalm 103 reminds us that there is forgiveness to be found because if, we, if God numbered our sins, and even if the number appeared small, but there's forgiveness to be found that he might be feared and adored. So, yeah, yeah, we are responsible for what goes on inside us. Uh, and Christ and his death and his blood saves us from even those sinful desires. Any other thoughts before we Even move on? Even sinful desires, you may not understand your sinful desires. That's right. That yeah. covers that. Yeah. I've had people in my Alzheimer's units, fine Christian people, minister ones, but when that disease took hold, they were running around, stripping off their clothes, doing all kinds of crazy things. But the blood of Christ covers even that. That's right, it does. Yep. Yeah. I think it's helpful to to see the act, that God is active in the directing of these things and the providence is, you threw that out here a while ago, that the different levels of it. And I think I find that my, I know that to be true, 
and yet in the daily activities you kind of get into the weeds or as you kind of get out there in the front lines, you start to forget that he's actively doing these things. I think of it like a, if we were at a meal and the, every bit of that meal had been directed, there was a chef or maybe it's mom, you know, mom makes a meal or something and everything here is for a purpose. This is, this is what was done. But you sit there and maybe the chef or mom or whoever is, is sitting there with you but you start to complain or to just think like this stuff's just randomly here. I don't like this. Or, but you know that this, is, this was actively directed. It would be different if you were sitting there knowing this, the person who's actively directing this is right here and did this for a purpose versus this just happened. But faith wavers during the day to forget that there, there is activity going on. This is actively being directed and he's right here doing so. He's not aloof. But these things aren't just here by by chance. This is actively being directed and he's right here doing so. You know this, but then as the day moves on, you kind of act like it's not true in, in your attitude toward it. it. It helps to see the connection when you can see and explain it mechanistically. You know, God dropped the lever here and the other side of the board went up. And that makes sense and we see it and we know it's there. But what if you can't see any of those things? Or what if the complexity of what God is doing is so great that it doesn't fit. We don't have the capacity, which is really, at the end of the day, that's all that God tells Job at the end of his troubles. It's like, there's more here than what, than what you can understand. It's not that I don't want to explain it. You can't understand it. And so, uh, God, the complexity of managing all this, uh, we love simple stories. And we love simple victories. And we love simple things. Folks, life isn't simple. Uh, there is a magnitude of complexity in managing all this, but it's actively being done. Yes? I'm reminded of Isaiah 40 uh, about the Lord sitting above the circle, the earth and the inhabitants being like grasshoppers. And <laughs> That's right. And the kings and rulers and everything and nothing. Yeah. And there are many verses that speak of that. I know you read just very few, but one other one that, that speaks that way. Well, I'm, I'm reminded when I think of these things that aligns with what you're saying in Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? I mean, why, why do you even bother thinking about us? Uh, that when there is, when you're obviously busy, God, right? I mean, that's kind of the way you, you might start thinking about it. Think, well, God's busy. And Psalm 8 reminds us, well, he's, there's a lot going on, but he's, he's mindful of us. He's thinking about us. Uh, he's orchestrating these things for the glory of his church to magnify his name. We're part of that. So the, the power and the complexity doesn't distance him from us. It has a mechanism, as a way of pulling us into that plan that he's doing. Yeah, that's very good. That's really helpful. And yeah. Psalm 33 right there is so handy too because you, you mentioned the lever thing. He drops the board, goes up. Providence, the car accident that happened. Some these things that seem, he, he's governing all those things, but he's also present when people are doing things. Right. 
confession talks elsewhere about he is not the agent of sin and so on. So in their sinful actions, Joseph and his brothers did still sinful action. But when the providence that you're dealing with involves the actions of other people, he's still present. Psalm 33 is, you know, in a nutshell, drawing that out. Nothing is outside of this, and that includes these areas that may even less, you may be less inclined to recognize his activity. Right. Let's look at a few others. So, so as to not be um, labeled just fanboys of Westminster, although it's good to do that. Uh, but other people are thinking about this as well. So let's take a look at just a couple of instances of the two other documents, the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God, the Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, it says it's, he still upholds the heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So here we see descriptions. This comes by his fatherly hand and this language of upholding. Um, a very tender document, a very tender description of God's providential care as, as our father doing these things. Um, so we'll look at the uh, Belgic Confession here in a couple of different ways. Um, so when we think about we, we think about the the all encompassing language uh, in this first section here, we believe that this good God. So here's this moral component of his character. After creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in the world without God's orderly arrangement. It's all things. He didn't abandon them. It's not chance or fortune, but he leads and governs them according to his holy will that nothing happens in this world without this orderly arrangement. Um, so uh, I want to read one more section, but I'm going to, uh, uh, I think it's about the fourth section here. Um, this doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly father who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, and not even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of the Father. So here we have another very pastoral perspective on this, helping us to understand. Uh, and this is where we start to see the relationship that I'm trying to draw with contentment. This doctrine of providence is an unspeakable comfort. That's how they depict it. It's an unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us. So when we think about our circumstances that we're in, in what light do you see those? Do you sometimes think it's, well, that was bad luck? Do you sometimes think, that God is not actively watching over you? Do you sometimes have to wonder what the point of it all is? There's a lot goes on in our minds, and our circumstances are varied. Even though there might be 
many common elements in, in each of our lives, there are also many distinct areas of our life. Some people are healthier, some people are not as healthy, smarter, richer, poorer. There's lots of change, lots of differences in all of our lives. But when you look at who you are and what your circumstances are like, do you think some of that was by chance? Well, the, the confession here is teaching us that no, it wasn't by chance. It's been arranged. That's not passive. That's, that's not seeing a picture of Elvis on a burnt piece of toast, right? That, you know, like, well, if I stare hard enough at this, uh, well, I think Vicky's seen Elvis. <laughs> she sees Elvis everywhere. That's right. But when you look at something like that, you're trying to make sense. You're trying to attribute significance to something that probably isn't there, right? That would be the, the point of those ridiculous exercises. That's not the point of thinking about providence. Providence is saying, I'm sure you don't understand what's going on. But don't forget, this is done by the careful arrangement of your Heavenly Father. Your circumstances are not by chance. They didn't happen out of a void. There's no um, uh, nothingness about it all. It's not random. It's been carefully arranged by your Father in heaven. And I like the way, we're not going to read the rest of this section of the confession, but I like the way they start the next paragraph after they explain this to us. In this thought, we rest. That's very pastoral, isn't it? In this, what thought? The thought that God carefully arranges our lives. Folks, if you're looking for answers as to why, you're not going to find it. And it may very well take all of eternity to even get a grasp of understanding a single moment of our lives. It's complicated. You don't have to know why. You have to know who. You have to know what is he after when he's arranging these things. He's glorifying his own name. He's building up the church. He's allotting to you different circumstances of life. So they, um, in this section of this confession... They remind us that in Matthew 10, 29, 31. So Jesus is commissioning his disciples for some work. And he warns them that there's going to be danger out there. That uh, what they're about to embark upon will involve some insecurities. And he reminds them that there is nothing that is too insignificant to be considered part of God's design and his active management of the world. Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground, depart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So here's where we begin to, to see this connection with the world. Jesus says, and he, he's, not, he's, not, he's not exaggerating. It's not hyperbole. It's saying, well, let me just find the most insignificant thing to kind of illustrate a point. No, he's literally saying that not a sparrow falls to the ground. The point of this is not imagery. I mean, there is imagery to it. But the point of it is, no, I'm not kidding, folks. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground. And, and sparrows aren't worth anything to anybody. That's the point he's making, right? You could take a whole bunch of sparrows and you're not going to spend a lot of money on these things. So this isn't worth anything to anybody. The hair's on your head. 
I mean, they're just going to grow, right? So, is your, well, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe that's the illusion, right? <laughs> but you get the idea. Jesus is trying to emphasize that there are insignificant things all around us, and not any part of this is happening outside of your father's active engagement with the world. And he doesn't stop there. He reminds them, you have more value than sparrows. So by implication, are you thinking that God values you more than sparrows in his allotments to your life? That's one of the implications. When Jesus says, you go out, you're going to be afraid of what's going to happen. What are you saying with your fears? God's not watching over me. And he just got done telling them. I don't want you to think that way. Everything about your life, you can rest in because God is the one who's made the arrangements. And you are of more value than sparrows or worms or whatever the case may be. That's section two. Creation and then the active management of the world. But there's yet another element to providence. Before we get to that, I want to see if you guys have any comments or questions. I have another one. Sorry, I'm pretty new in the Bible. <laughs> That's, we love so, questions. When God is, uh, God is in control and, and, and directing uh, every single, you know, everything, right? Every thought, act, every, I mean, every situation, this and that. And so like the injustices in the world, when we say God is directing those, I mean, I understand that terminology-wise, it kind of a little bit conflicts with free will. So, so I mean, I understand that he gives us free will and then when we have all these actions and all these injustices occur, I understand the big picture is God is allowing these things and God is ultimately in control of all those things, right? But when we, when the, when we term uh, that he directs, uh, you know, every, every single thing, almost, he wouldn't be creating, I mean, that kind of conflicts with free will, right? Like he wouldn't be creating the injustices in the world for, because of his own good and how the outcome figured. I mean, I know it's all under control, it's all for a purpose. But self doesn't self will allow us to to create, which kind of takes away his ability to. to yeah. Or I don't know if that's explaining that. No, you are, and yeah. and and that does make a lot of. That is an important question. Um, this isn't a class on providence. This is a class on contentment, mm-hmm. and how it relates. Uh, so there's the confession uh, expresses much more information about those particular questions. Uh, But let me see if I could just briefly uh, attack that. So uh, man does have decision-making capacity, right? But it's always in accordance to his will, to his nature. So uh, a person uh, like Jesus, uh, he was not corrupt in his nature. So what he did uh, came from a heart that wanted to please God, and he did. He lived a sinless life. But people um, people are not pure in heart. Right? Uh, the Bible describes their condition as being fallen or even dead on the inside, dead in the sense of being alive and interested in doing God's will. So it's not, it's not odd that men would decide to do evil right. when they when they might have an option to not do it. But the question is, what's God's desire and what's his motivation with those same acts? So God's desire and his actions are never evil at all. 
righteous art thou, O Lord, and all thy judgments are true, is how the psalmist describes it. So you might think, is, and injustice is a good example, um, because by nature we don't like injustice, right? We don't like people being hurt. But the greatest injustice there ever was was Jesus' death. You know? So the Bible describes that God sent his son. God's the one that sent him to die, isn't it? But yet, after Jesus rose and ascended and the apostles went out and preached, um, Peter tells him, he said, you crucified him. I mean, there were Romans there. There were priests and Sadducees and others that were there. They're the ones that physically put him on the cross and killed him, right? So the same act had multiple actors, didn't it? Uh, But what God was doing was for the redemption of his people, not doing it. They were murdering out of hate and envy and other things. But God was not doing that. He was bringing redemption. So the, the, the motives behind God, what God was doing, are never blemished. But the motives behind what people are doing often are. And the same act can be produced by different people with different motives. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's take this last section. So creation then this upholding, directing, disposing, and governing. And then, I think this is weird. I think this third one is weird. And I, I, it struck me that, I don't know that I've ever talked to people about this in this way. So, um, if I gave you the task of describing the excellency and the supremacy of Christ, what would you say about him? Just shout out your answers. Well, that, no, that's just weird, Jonathan. That's just weird. So make a note not to call him Jonathan uh, rest of this class. So what else? Lawless love. Yeah, love, sure, absolutely, right? Deserving of all praise. Deserving of praise, sure, right? What else? What else would describe the excellency of Christ? Only Jonathan's answers are weird, so everybody else is going to be okay. Yeah, God is everywhere at all times. So let's, let's look at a couple, of, uh, a couple of examples. The answer to many of life's questions really is Jesus, in this case is true. So Paul uh, at Athens is visiting the people. They're worshiping the unknown God, and, and he wants to talk to them about Jesus. And this is the way he describes it um, in starting in Acts 17, 25 to 28. Nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Why this talk about providence? Why this talk about creation when he's trying to help people understand Jesus? It's kind of an interesting apologetic, isn't it? Uh, Here, you guys, you have this unknown God, but this is the guy here. He gives life to everyone. He causes them to breathe. He made everything. In fact, it's in him that we live and move and 
have our being. I guess I never thought about the idea of exalting Christ in creation as part of an evangelistic effort that Jesus made all things. But that's what Paul's doing. So let's, let's look at another passage, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And again, the, the whole point of the opening chapters of Hebrews is to display the excellency of Christ above everything else, right? I mean, that's, we just had a long sermon series on it. Everything you can think of, he just knocks them off one at a time. He says, that's not as good as Jesus. This isn't as good. But here's how he describes. God, who has various times and various ways spoken time past to the Father by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So, yes, Jonathan's answer was right, but he tried to steal the thunder, so that's why he had to be shamed like that. So don't, don't do that. It's not right. But imagine you thinking about just how good is Jesus well, compared to what? Well, compared to the bulls and goats, compared to Moses, compared to this, compared to that, as we go through Hebrews. And yet the writer of Hebrews is telling us Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. That's how great Jesus is. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. He also made the worlds. Jesus made everything. He upholds everything. You can't think of Jesus as just some backwoods carpenter who cut some stone and made some wood and made trinkets to sell and was useful. That's, that's a very limited, small view of Jesus. And when you get to Hebrews, he introduces this point. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. He spends much more time talking about bulls and goats and things. But he spends this time here talking about it. This Jesus is intricately linked with providence. Who is upholding all things? Jesus is. Christ is excellent in every way. So let's look at one more. Colossians 1, 9 through 18, and Paul again is, is emphasizing how great Jesus is. It says, for this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you might be filled may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's amazing. By itself, that's amazing. But starting in verse 15, it says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. 
So Paul's saying, all this glory and all this inheritance that you're getting isn't enough. Put your eyes back on Jesus and see him as the creator and upholder of all things. So the point in, in our trajectory is God made all things. First, he, he has his decrees. Then he makes everything. Then he upholds, he directs, he disposes, he allocates, he governs all things. And it turns out that the one who's doing this is Jesus. He's the third leg of this idea of contentment and of providence. So when you think of the circumstances you find yourself in life, find yourself under the careful scrutiny, the eyes of Jesus, who upholds all things. So let's just as a re-slice those definitions that we were looking at. God's wise and fatherly disposal which is carefully upheld by Jesus in every condition. That portion that God, through Jesus, has given him, according to Ames. And we rest satisfied, going back to the Belgian Confession there, we rest, in this thought, we rest satisfied with the will of God, respecting our temporal affairs concerning his allotments, which are maintained and secured by his Son. And the stillness and sedatedness of spirit under all occurrences of providence which are administered under the careful eye of Jesus. See, you can change those definitions, and I'm sure I speak for all Puritans that they would agree with this. This is how they saw Jesus. So when we think of creation, we think of providence, we think of the making of the world, the administering, the upholding, the directing, let's not forget the third leg of the stool and think of the supremacy and the excellency of Jesus who upholds all things. And if you see it in that light, it sort of changes what Jesus said back there in uh, Matthew 10. You are vastly more important than sparrows, and Jesus knows exactly what is happening to them. Pay attention, Melody. (laughs) At all times. I wanted something to help you remember this passage from Matthew 10. This is the only thing I could think of to make this thing stick. That'll do it. That'll do it. Jesus, he knows everything about sparrows. And you are more important than they are. (laughs) That's right. All right. So the closing thoughts and comments are yours. We have a few minutes. Bruce. Christianity is different from every religion in the world. This is not their cold fate. It's personal. God directs it. That's right. This is not fate. And we're going to cover more of fate and some other errors in our objections class in a few weeks. So, yep, thank you. What else?